The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We've been looking at what a healthy church looks like. And a healthy church, we said, looking out of the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, we said that it was a church that as the people came together, they worshipped God. They were given to worship. They were amazed in the presence of God. They were stunned by His wonder and His beauty, and they were drawn in. And so they regularly worshipped together corporately, and then throughout the course of the week, uh, they would offer their lives as an offering to the Lord. They would worship Him uh, individually as well. We said that a healthy church was one that said in Acts chapter 2 that they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. So it was disciples, that it was men and women, children who were coming into the presence of Christ and saying, I want to learn about him, not just so I can gain truth, but that that truth would impact and change my life and transform me from the man or woman that I am today into the new creation that I am in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to allow God's word. I'm going to allow the gathering together with God's people to change me in that way. And so they were disciples. Last week, uh, we said that coming together as a church uh, was a church that had and developed real relationships together. That they knew one another and that they worked hard to, to live open lives in front of one another, sharing both their, their needs and their joys, sharing out of their wealth and out of their poverty, coming together. Uh, in that way. And that's where these dinner eight groups came. We thought it'd be good for us to start developing real relationships uh, with other people uh, in the church body. And then finally this week, we're looking at the last part of uh, Acts chapter 2, looking at verses 42 and 47. And it said this, I'll read the whole thing for you. It says, beginning in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. That last part is what we're going to look at. The final mark of the church that we're going to see is that it's a church that worships together. It's a church that wants to grow in its knowledge and understanding and become more and more like Jesus Christ. It's a church that has deep, meaningful, real relationships together. And it's a church that sees gospel growth. That it sees their numbers being added to day by day. That God is doing a work of bringing more and more people together in that way. So, verse 47 there really is saying this. We're not looking and we're not aiming at growth. Growth isn't the end result. Health is the end result. Health is what we're aiming towards, to be a healthy church that proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ, that worships him in a way that has lives that are transformed in such a way that the members of the collective body are living their lives as distinctively Christian lives in the midst of a distinctively non-Christian world so that others around them are looking at them, hearing from them, asking questions of them, and coming in and their lives are being changed. They are giving their lives to Christ. And so the church is growing in that way. So we're not aiming at growth. We're 
aiming at health in Christ. And, but here's the interesting thing. When you're a healthy church that's aiming at the right things, growth occurs. Randy Pope, the senior pastor down at Perimeter Church, little church over in Atlanta, uh, it's like, I don't know, 10,000 people or something. And so many of them have come to faith through the ministry of that church. They see more people come into membership through giving their lives to Christ than they do through transfer of membership, through coming from another church. And Randy and I were talking one day, and he said, people come to him all the time and say, hey, I want to be a big church like you. He says, if you see a five foot six, 405 pound guy walk in the door, your first comment isn't, wow, there's a healthy fella. Size does not necessarily mean health. Health means health. And so we want to be a healthy church. And so we want to grow in a way that sees people who are out in the world, the broken, the lost, those who are looking for hope, to come and to find it through relationships with the members of our church and through the ministries of our church. We're going to move to another passage in Acts. We're going to look a little bit farther down the road. The church had come and they were gathering together there in Jerusalem and thousands of souls were being added to them day by day. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, it says that persecution came upon the church and that everybody wasn't so excited about this church growing. And so there was persecution that began to happen. And it says that the apostles and many of the Christians were dispersed throughout the ancient Near East, all around the Mediterranean rim. And interestingly enough, where they went, guess what they took with them? The gospel of Jesus Christ. They were defined by who they were in Christ. And so wherever they went, they began to establish fellowships of believers and to go and to tell everybody else in the Roman world about this Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, you began to see growth happening. And one man who used to persecute the church, his name was Saul, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ and was transformed into a follower of Jesus Christ to became what was called an apostle, one who was sent out. And his name changed from Saul to Paul. And he wrote most of the New Testament that you hold in your hands today. And Paul went out and around, all around the ancient Near East there, and especially into what is Greece and into those areas in the Baltic. And he went and he was sharing his faith. And in chapter 16, we're going to look. So if you have your Bibles, you can move over there. You can look up on the screen. And this is Paul coming into a city. And this is how he saw and experienced gospel growth through the ministry of the church. And we're going to grab some points out of this uh, and apply them to ourselves today. So here God's word, verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, he made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. He remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day he went outside the gates to the riverside, where were where we supposed there, where he supposed there was a place of prayer. And he sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And we were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And it goes on in the next part to talk about the conversion of this slave girl. And so 
Here's a picture for us of several things. And the first thing we're going to see about a healthy church that sees gospel-driven growth in it is that it is intentional in its efforts. It's intentional in its efforts to reach the lost and hurting world. So that Paul was there in uh, the city of Philippi, and Philippi uh, was a, a garrison, a Roman garrison that had grown into a city. It was a Roman colony within the Greek area there. And he went and he thought, what am I going to do in Philippi today? And on the Sabbath day, he realized, I'm going to go to a place where there are people who already know a little bit about God. They're God-fearers. They're not believers. They don't know about Jesus Christ. They haven't been converted to a faith in the Messiah, but they know a general understanding of who God is. And so I'm going to go there and I'm going to go and I'm going to begin teaching those folks about Jesus Christ. He was strategic and he was intentional in how he went about his life. And it's the same way with us. Most of us just sort of wake up in the day and go and wherever the Lord may lead and wherever may come. Paul didn't live his life that way. Paul says to us as believers and to us in the church, think strategically. As ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where does God want you to go? Who does God want you to encounter today? Go and intentionally engage those folks. That's what Paul did. He went out there and intentionally engaged a group of people who he knew were already gathered together. Now, I'm probably going to step on some toes, and I don't, well, I guess I do mean to, uh, but I don't want to offend you, per se. But there are a couple of ways to begin to, to think about intentionality as it means sharing the gospel. You can wait for the church, and for me, and Matt, and Patrick, and the elders to come up with some grandiose, wonderful ideas of how we're going to be a church given to evangelism and outreach. And we're going to create programs that then you would plug into and we'll say, hey, we've got a great program. We're going to go take the beach for Jesus Christ. And we're going to send out a hundred of our people and we're going to go and canvas the whole beach and we're going to hand out tracts and we're going to have street evangelism and we're going to do uh, little skits and we're going to do all of those things. And some of you are going, I ain't going on that. And there may be some folks who come to faith through that. And those are good ways of doing it. I I've done those before. But the way I view that is kind of like this. That's like going out and going all the way out into the blue water, 80 miles off the coast, and hoping to catch a marlin. You may or may not catch one. And if your dinner is dependent upon that, that's probably not the best way to go about trying to serve or to get food for your, for your family. My thought is this. Instead of going marlin fishing, how about shoot some fish in a barrel? How about find a place where you know there's already people who need to hear the gospel and that you probably already have relationships with and you have entrance into their lives better than walking up onto the beach or down at Caligny or wherever it is. And again, I'm not saying we won't go do those things, but they have to be done in concert this way. How many of you live in a house? Apartment, townhouse, tent. I'm trying to cover everything. Or camper or trailer. There's a couple of people I know. There we go. Okay. So we've covered that you live somewhere. How many of you have neighbors? Okay, so far we're doing well. You're tracking with me. How many? How many of you uh, look like Taylor Swift? Kind of coming back, um, just without the hair. Um, 
you have neighbors who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Okay, so taking those three things into account, how about this? How about you get to know your neighbors? How about you as Christians who love Jesus Christ and want to see your neighbors come to faith and to be able to stand in awe in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene? How about you do this? Open your home and invite them in. Have a meal with them. Get to know them. Build relationships on your cul-de-sac. Build relationships within your community. Build those relationships in such a way that you can then begin to strengthen that relationship and begin to tell them about the most important thing in all of your life. And it wasn't what you used to do in your career. It was not your handicap on the golf course. It's not any of those things. It's about your Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you build these relationships intentionally in that area that you already know. And you just invite them into your house for a meal. That sound pretty easy? That's not quite as intimidating as handing out tracts. Now, handing out tracts are fine, but here's how I used to hand out tracts. I used to do this when I was living out in Hawaii, in Honolulu, uh, in, Honolulu on, uh, in um, Waikiki Beach. And I was told, Bill, here are 50 tracts. You can't get on the van back to the house where you're living until you hand out all 50 tracts. I was like, okay. Let's see, and I would hand out a few, and people would throw them at me, or they'd kind of say, You're, this is crazy, and all this kind of thing. And so I did what any wonderful, mature uh, young Christian would do. I threw 47 of them in the trash can. I didn't know how to do it. I was so absolutely intimidated by one-on-one -on -one confrontational evangelism, I had no idea how to do that. And so the longest time, that's what I thought evangelism was. Then I had a friend of mine who said, Bill, come with me. We're going to go do evangelism. I said, okay, we're going to go do evangelism. And he grabbed a ladder. I was like, I'm not sure how a ladder and evangelism go together. And so we jumped in his pickup truck and we headed down to another place in Honolulu. And he set up the ladder on the corner of the road and he climbed up and he started screaming, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. You're going to die and go to hell if you don't love Jesus. Now, are, those are true statements. And again, Bill McCutcheon, with who I am, I went, oh my goodness. And people were looking at me like, are you associated with this guy? <laughs> now we did see some folks come to faith we did see some people come and we saw some others come and say it's just so encouraging to see you standing up for your faith but what I realized in that I didn't like evangelism if that's what evangelism was and then as Lisa and I grew uh, we got married and we grew in our relationship with the Lord we had someone present this idea that I just presented to you, which was simply opening your home to the non-believers who live around you. And I've shared with you the neighborhood that we used to live in in Midtown Memphis. But we were surrounded by non-church folks. A lesbian couple that lived in front of us. An atheist couple who were doctors and teachers at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. Uh, we had a Jehovah's Witness house church, four houses down from us. We had another a uh, gay couple uh, living two houses down. Uh, we had some folks who went to a church that didn't preach the gospel here. We had an abortion clinic at the other end uh, of our street. And two streets over was just absolute destitution uh, and poverty and drug addiction and prostitution and everything. And that was our neighborhood. And so we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Our house is the lighthouse. Our house is the safety, is the sanctuary. And we started inviting all of these friends, all of these neighbors, into our house. And we said, we just want to get to know you. 
And I'm telling you the story, I think. One guy walked in, and he sat down at dinner. He said, so, you're a preacher? I said, yeah, I'm a preacher. I'm a Presbyterian pastor. He goes, so, you don't believe in a woman's right to choose, and you hate homosexuals. I was like, welcome to my dinner table. <laughs> and that's where we started. But we jumped right in. And we began to build a relationship with this couple. And I don't think that they accepted Christ, but I know what we did do with them. We took away the stigma that all Christians are crazy people. And that all Christians uh, come across in this negative light. And so we were able to build this relationship with them. And then one day we were having brunch at our house on an Easter. And one of the young ladies in our church uh, came and she said, well, my uh, barrel of fish is the art school there. And that's where I am. And I know those folks. So I'm going to start uh, sharing my faith with those folks and building a relationship with them. And she invited two of her artist friends over to our house on Easter. And so they're walking up to our house. And uh, the young man who was with her looked and said, so whose house is this? And she said, this is my pastor's house. He goes, oh, no. He had a fifth of Jack Daniels in his hand. And he shoved it in the boxwoods. He goes, I can't take a fifth of Jack Daniels to a pastor. Why didn't you tell me? And then the girl, the other girl who was with her, had a dozen hard-boiled eggs for the Easter egg hunt. And she was an artist, and they were meticulously painted. And they said, religion is the opiate of the people. She said that there's, I mean, it was just all of this stuff. We were like, whoa. And we invited them into our home. And some of the Christian moms and dads who were in our home for that brunch to have the little Easter egg hunt later said, you're not going to use those eggs, are you? I said, of course we're going to use those eggs. Does your two-year-old read? <laughs> she said, no. I said, so if I refuse the gift, the loving gift of this non-believing girl, she will never come to believe in the same. And so we used those eggs, and we reused them, and then we ate them later. And they were wonderful, and I don't think I'm demon-possessed because of them. <laughs> but what we found out sometime later was that both of those young people committed their lives to Jesus Christ. Because they went and had a meal. And that their crazy gifts were accepted. And so when you invite people into your home, be ready for difference of opinion. Be ready for different ways to address the world. But it's ways to simply reach out and be intentional about it. I asked for permission to do this. Jeff and Becky Peters are sitting here and they live over um, in Indigo Run, but when they were in St. Louis, right, they decided that one of the ways that they were going to reach their neighborhood was to have an, an evangelistic Bible study, where they invited their neighbors to come, and they were going to go through a study and, and introduce them in a non-threatening way to Jesus Christ. And Jeff got a phone call from his mom and said, hey, how come you seem to love your neighbors more than you love me? How come you didn't invite me to come? And he said, well, come on over, Mom. And your sister and brother-in-law? Said basically the same thing. Well, come on over. And you know what happened? Jeff's mother and his sister and his brother-in-law and several of those people in the street are going to be in heaven because they opened their home to share Jesus Christ with them. Isn't that awesome? How many of you guys can open a door? Pour a cup of coffee? Make people welcome? You can do that. You have the opportunity to be intentional about doing that. And so I want us, the first thing that we see about Paul in this is we want to be intentional. And so the church is going to come alongside you with programs. The church is going to come alongside you with ministries. But what we want to do is help fan what's already going on in your life. 
We want to help get that going in your life and help move it on down the road a little bit, not to create it and start it for you. So we want to help come alongside those things. And so the first thing is being intentional. Go where you know people who need to hear the gospel are. Go there. And some of you here today need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leads to the second thing. When you have uh, a conversation with them, when you've been intentional and begin, you have to do this. You have to be engaging and bold in your proclamation of the gospel. It says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart that she might believe the things that Paul was teaching. Paul was communicating truth. Paul was able to articulate what he believed in a way that the folks around him could gain entrance into it, could understand it, and could then believe in it. And what Paul was doing there was probably working very hard not to sound uh, with a bunch of Christianese. We, we talk in a way that is undecipherable to people around us. Uh, we, we talk, and there's some funny little videos out there of what we say and how we do it and all as Christians. And the watching world around us doesn't understand. But here's what we need to do. We have to be bold. And we have to ask for that boldness and engaging. Listen to what Paul, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. He says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to See, he's asking for intentionality that God would open a door so that he could intentionally walk through it to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul is praying, and in another translation, he says that I may boldly proclaim. Why do you think Paul was asking for prayer for boldness? Anybody? Maybe because at times Paul would get intimidated. You ever thought of that? We look at Paul as a super Christian. We look at Paul as this guy who had no weaknesses at all. And Paul was a man who said, you know, I'm really not great with words. He admitted it in other places. He said, so I need you to pray for me that I would have boldness because it's intimidating to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because guess what's going to happen when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Some people are going to reject you. Who enjoys rejection? Anybody? Can't wait to be rejected today. Well, none of us. And so we already grab our crystal balls and we look and we go, oh, they're probably not. They're going to think we're crazy. They're not going to do this. I'm not even going to share with them. And instead he says, be bold and engaging. And be able to articulate with wisdom the truth that you believe. Here's my question for you. Can you articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that those who don't believe can understand it? Not necessarily believe it, but can understand it. Most of us can't. Many of us hide behind the words of, that's been, now I'll tell you this, I don't think St. Francis of Assisi actually said these words, but it's this, it's what constantly preach the gospel and if you have to, use words. I'm not sure St. Francis ever said that, but everyone loves it and uses it because we're afraid to use words, but folks, let me let you in on a little something. You're going to have to use words. You're going to have to be able to articulate the beauty 
of the fact that you were designed for glory, that God made you in his image, that there is a creator who made all things and made them perfectly and beautifully, and sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and in Adam and Eve all men fell, and now when you look around in the world is the disintegration of all of humanity and all of creation, and there is no hope, and there is this loss in the midst of it, and there's a darkness, but there is hope in the middle of it, and the hope comes that God, sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to take on humanity so that he, in his perfection, would free you from the bondage of your loss and the bondage of your sin and give you his righteousness so that you would no longer be lost, but you would be a son or a daughter of the king, free from all of that bondage, and that you would now have a glory given back to you through grace and heaven is for you. Can you articulate that to your friends and neighbors? One of the things that we want to do here as a church is help you do that. And so we're going to start some classes in the, in the not-too-distant future where we want to help train you on how to simply share your faith. And it's important that you can tell your own story of how God has intersected your heart and your life. And so that you can powerfully say, I know this is true because it's true here on a true level, capital T, but it's also true because I've experienced it in my own life. And so the combination of those things brought together is tensionally sees that God, and so it's engaging and bold and speaking the words of truth. So you want to be intentional, you want to be bold, and then we'll end with this final one. Here's the last thing, okay? Let God be God. Let God be God. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart that she might believe the things that Paul had taught. Who did the work of salvation in Lydia's heart? Was it Paul? No, she did not have the ability to believe what Paul was teaching. She did not have the ability to believe the truth and the goodness of the gospel unless God, in his grace and in his mercy, looked down and changed Lydia's heart so that it went from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, that it would then follow him and believe in him. People regularly ask me, so Bill, you're telling me that in your theology, we don't have to choose God. God chooses us. And I'm saying, well, that's partially what I'm saying. I'm saying both are actually true. God chooses you, and he makes the first movement in your heart so that you will choose him. R.C. Sproul said, God changes the chooser so that it chooses God. You have to, on your own account, Pursue and actively choose him. But let God be God and do the work. You know what that frees us from? Manipulation. I don't have to manipulate anybody into believing the truth. I simply live it out and testify to it and share it in the best way I know how with all of my weaknesses and shortcomings and all of those things and allow God to be God and the Holy Spirit to work in the life of that individual to change that individual's heart. And I allow God to be God. It also does this. It frees me to really, truly love people and not see them as an end. What I want you to do with your neighbors is to be a really good neighbor. And some of your neighbors will never come to faith, but still be a good neighbor. Love them well. If they reject you, don't go, oh, well, not inviting the Smith back. They didn't take the bait. You still love them because you never know when God is going to move in the heart of an individual. There's a great parable that says, those who have labored all day long receive the same reward as those who on their deathbed, in their final breath, look 
and say, God, I believe. Or pinned to a cross next to Jesus, say, you are who you say that you are. And Jesus looks at him and says, today you will be in paradise with me and my Father. You never know when that can happen because it's God who does the work. Paul said, I I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but it was God who did the work. And so here's what we want to do. I want to free your consciences. I want to free you from thinking that it's up to you. And here's what I want you to do is now go unabashedly to live your lives for Jesus Christ, articulating the truth of the gospel to the people that you know in a winsome way, and then say, God, would you do an amazing work? in the people that I love dearly. Ushers, I'm going to ask you to grab this little piece of paper that uh, we gave gave to you. Matt, do they have it? They look something like this. This is a little piece of paper, and it's something that I want you to take. Go ahead, and you can be handing them out. And on one side it says, I commit to pray for. And there's three numbers. What I would like you to do is write down the names of three people who you know who need to come to faith in Jesus Christ, who don't love them as and won't love him as their Savior. This is confidential. This is for you to take. And on the other side, it says this: Romans 1:16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So here's what I want you to do with this: I want you to take it and write down a name, and then I want you to put it in your wallet. I want you to put it in your pocket. I want you to put it in your car if you travel a lot. I want you to keep it someplace. I want you to consistently and constantly pray that God would give you opportunity to share the gospel with these individuals or that God would, if they're not in your life, if they're somewhere else, that God would bring believers into their lives to share the gospel and pray that God would open their hearts so they would believe these things. Does that sound reasonable? Is that too intimidating? No. And here's something else I'd love for you to do. Keep track. Lisa had a very good friend in college who carried around a piece of paper very similar to this. I think it had seven names uh, on it of his friends from high school who he wanted to come to faith in Jesus Christ and pray faithfully for those friends, faithfully through college, faithfully for them out of college and for years. And now, by God's grace and to his glory, all seven of those men have come to faith. And I think in large part, Because that young man committed himself to pray that God would be the Lord of the harvest. I want us to be a church like that. And I'm going to give you another resource. This is a wonderful book. It's called The Answer. How many of you guys have ever heard or read this book? A few of you. This book is a simple treatment of the gospel. And it's a wonderful way that if you have a friend who you're willing to risk. It's going to be a risk, by the way. Because that friend could look at you and go, you're nuts. We ain't hanging out anymore. And that's okay. But if you're willing to risk a little bit, to say, hey, can we walk through something together? And it's called the answer. It says, putting an end to the search for life satisfaction. Randy Pope, again, the pastor over in Atlanta, wrote this. And it's a very effective tool to use. And you can use it with men, women, younger people. And so um, you can get it from Amazon. If you don't know how to use Amazon or you don't have the... 10 bucks or whatever, we'll buy them for you at the church and we'll get them for you. But I'd encourage you to use this as a tool. But my hope is this, and I'll end here, is that we want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministries of this church and through your lives. There is nothing more exciting. I've sat with Jeff and talked with him about what it was like 
to be able to share the gospel with your mother and to see her come to faith and now know that you have helped lead her into eternal salvation. Wow. I've never gotten a hole in one. I think that'd be pretty cool. But I've got some folks that I'm praying for, and I think it would be an all, really even better if they came to me and said, Bill, I believe in that Jesus. I saw on Facebook the other day a fraternity brother of mine, and he's been talking about Christ a lot. And I wrote him, I said, tell me what happened. And he told me about his life, and he told me how he came to faith in Christ, and I said, how crazy is it that the two of us who used to stand on the roof of the KA House of Presbyterian College and cry out to the world of how great we were, now stand amazed in the presence of Jesus and have given their lives to him. And he says, isn't that awesome, Bill? Who would have thought? God can do immeasurably more than you ask or imagine. Father, thank you for the beauty of the cross and the work of Jesus Christ. And we pray now that as we come to this table, that what we're doing publicly is acknowledging our love and allegiance for you, and that we are seeing you as beautiful, and that we are accepting the gift that you've given to us. Father, bless us as we come today. To Christ be the glory. Amen.